Hello there, it's Andrew here again. We're running into another episode of um, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Home Bible Studies in Hebrews, study number four, Greater Than Moses. Um, this is the podcast for the study, and trust you'll be blessed as you listen in with us. This was the question can be asked right at the beginning of the study. How does Jesus compare to other notable figures of the past? On one occasion, Winston Churchill apparently was asked um, who were the ten most influential uh, people that he knew from history. Of course, he was a great historian. Uh, and he may, he listed a, a series of names that included people like Moses and so on. And, and he was asked why he hadn't included Jesus Christ. And his response was, I think, um, eloquent. He says he does not belong to any group of ten. I think it's really helpful to remember that there's a sense in which the Lord Jesus um, we thought in chapter 2, became human, took to himself humanity, and thus, thus can link himself to us, as we learned from the last study. But of course, he always remains completely distinct and superior and uh, so much greater than anyone else who has ever uh, lived. That's true even of the great man Moses. There is no greater than Moses as far as humans go in the uh, history of the nation of Israel as we're going to think as we go through. The writer has explained already in chapter 1, 1 to 4 that the son is superior to the prophets in his revelation, the message he brings and his person. He showed him to be much superior to the angels in his rank and his nature and his functions and in his purpose. Uh, we've spread that through chapter uh, 1 and 2 from verse number 5 of chapter 1 right to the end of chapter 2. Now he begins with an appeal to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, to consider him attentively. We'll see that at the start of chapter 3. And he's going to compare and contrast Jesus to Moses, the greatest, um, <clears throat> perhaps the greatest man that has ever lived prior to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll think about Moses in a little bit more detail in a few minutes. But it's important that we understand where he's going here. These are the great and the good and the noble of um, Israel. And of course, they would still be claimed by the children of Israel, by the Jews. They would claim these people for themselves. And the Christians, those who are Hebrew Christians, who have uh, come away from that and accepted and acknowledged Christ as their uh, Lord, as their Saviour, um, of this group, of this group, <clears throat> they perhaps would have felt that they had lost out on all these great men of the past. What did they really have in the Lord Jesus? Of course, the Lord wasn't there with them. There was no tangible presence of Christ among them. They didn't even have the, the temple or anything that they could look at because that was part of the old system. But now they're being told to focus their mind and fix their eyes and turn their hearts to how great the Lord Jesus Christ really is. And of course, that is something that Christians down through the ages, whatever background we come from, whatever um, culture we are from, we can turn our eyes to Christ and we can express him in our culture, in our day, because we have found out how great he really is. So let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 3. We'll read the, the the two sections of this chapter, and then we'll focus in on each in turn as we go through our, our study today. The first section, considering the Christ, we'll read from chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. 
I'm reading from the New King James Version. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honour than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who builds all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ is son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold past the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. The second section I've called Challenging Our Belief, from 3 verse 7 to 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, in the day of trial, or testing, in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. So I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart, of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden at your heart as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. It's really important to see that when we look at a chapter like this, that it doesn't sit in isolation. It sits um, after chapter 2. I know that seems obvious, but it's really easy to read the scriptures and just think of the one chapter and try to understand the one chapter in isolation from what's before and what's after. And it's important that when we come to 3 verse 1, for instance, when he speaks of holy brethren, his mind is obviously still in the end of chapter 2. You remember he has spoken of uh, those who are called um, his brethren, 2 verse 11, um, and, and we have at the end of chapter 2, <coughs> Christ who has come down and took to himself true humanity. And he is bringing um, a company. He is the, the leader of that company and he is leading them. He's the pioneer of that company, bringing them to glory. And so now there's a company associated with him. Now that dis distinction is made from chapter 1. When chapter 1, we see Christ in all his unique uh, splendor as the creator, as the, as the one who is... Um, above and beyond everyone, uh, one who is truly God, chapter 1, the one who uh, became flesh we find in chapter 2. Again, he says, holy brethren, sanctified, set apart brethren. These are they're people who have been set apart by Christ. Again, go back to 2, verse 11. But he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are being sanctified are all of one. They're all uh, in one company. Um. There is togetherness, companionship. That's where the word company uh, comes in, of course. Uh, we think of company as a as a, an organization now, but company in that sense of companions together is really what you get at the end of chapter 
uh, too. And of course, Christ is linked to them so very closely. We looked at that. You must look back in the podcast, the last podcast, for more details. But here we have, therefore, in light of all that has gone before, what is this word, therefore, therefore? Well, of course, therefore, when it comes up in the Bible, it, it's reflecting back and it's bringing us forward. Uh, in light of what we know now, holy brethren, partakers, sharers of the heavenly calling. Uh, in contrast to Israel, who had an earthly calling um, in that sense that, that their calling was very earthbound and earth-focused. They had a, a land in Canaan that they were given and, and so on and so forth. Now we have partakers of the heavenly calling. God is calling people to himself uh, through Christ as we find at the end of chapter 2. Then he says consider. Now this word for consider is to consider attentively, to fix one eyes upon, to fix one's mind upon. Uh, and then he says consider the apostle and high priest of our confession Christ Jesus. Now, many of the translations uh, at this point just have the singular human name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus, just here in verse number one. But we will find when we come down to verse number six again another reference to Christ. And I want to pause and understand what is meant by Christ in a little minute. But first of all, before we get there, we'll have to look at apostle and high priest of our confession. Who is it that we are to scrutinize? Who is it we are to focus in on? Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now the apostle, of course, the word apostle, we think of it in relation to the 12 apostles. And, and the Lord says, you know, as my father sent me, even so have I sent you. And the thought there is that they are the sent ones. They have a mission. They, they are missional in character. They have a job to do and they have a mission to accomplish. And they've been sent by the master, as it were. But of course, Christ was an apostle too. He was sent by the Father. He came into this world with a very specific purpose. And so he is the apostle. Interesting, we, know, we don't learn of any other apostles in Hebrews. Um, if it was written by the apostle Paul, which is in doubt, it might or might not have been. It was certainly uh, written by someone who was connected to the apostles, at the very least. And yet they never mention any of the other uh, apostles in that sense, uh, directly in uh, Hebrews. Um, so here we have the apostle, the one who is sent from God, and then the high priest. What does that mean? Well, we've discovered that the high priest was the one who went into God's presence and represented the people before God. We've seen that at the end of chapter 2. And now Christ, he came out from God's presence to, to bring the message of God to the people. Now he goes back into God's presence and he represents the people before God because he's taken to himself true humanity. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Um, we are the ones who have associated ourselves with him. Now he's going to say a number of things about this confession that we have made of Christ Jesus. Um, so we'll, we'll maybe pause on that and think of it maybe later on. But we come to this idea of the Christ. Um, I asked the question in the, the handouts, which of course are available if you need them. Um, please uh, contact me and and Williamson zero one at yahoo.co.uk if you don't have it, uh, or drop into um, Culloden Christian Assembly, drop us a line and I can get you the the handouts for this. But anyway, 
coming back to our um, coming back to our subject. What does the writer mean? What does he mean by the Christ or the Messiah? Now the the word Messiah is just to give it a very simple understanding, it really means the anointed one. And you come through the Old Testament on several occasions, it speaks about one who is the anointed, the chosen, the the one who was going to come to fix things, put things right. Um, But when we think about it a bit more, we actually come across the fact that uh, there are three offices that that were associated with anointings in the Old Testament. The the prophets were often anointed uh, as prophets. Um, The priests were anointed uh, as priests. And the the kings were anointed as kings. I know that's probably the most obvious one is the kings were anointed as kings. But let's think about those three things just for a minute. When we think of the prophets being anointed, we're thinking of those who are fulfilling an office where they speak to the people for God. They represent God before the people. They, they bring the revelation of God to the people. Did Christ do that? course he did yes he brought the revelation the revelation was himself we see that in hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 to 4 then of course after that um there's something else comes out very clearly at the end of chapter 1 and it's that there's a time coming when he will rule the people for god in a very real sense and your throne of god is forever and ever Uh, a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom you have loved um um, you've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above his fellows and so there we see him anointed as king as on a throne and so when we think of the theocracy the, the Jewish people of the of ancient times they had prophets which brought the, the message of God to the people they revealed the, the message of God to the people and they represented God in that sense to the people then we have the, the king and he ruled for God um, among the people. Uh, and and he, David, for instance, very often referred to God as the king of kings. Look at the Psalms. And he was unlike a lot of the other kings around him at that time. If you were to look into ancient history, you find they, they deified themselves. But David didn't because he realized that he was ruling uh, the people for God. He was God's vice regent in that sense. So, the kings were those who ruled for God. Uh, and thirdly, of course, we have um, the priests. And the priest, and particularly the high priest, was the one who represented God before the people and represented the people before God, perhaps more specifically. So, he went into the presence of God and, and, and upon his forehead there was this... Um, this sign which says holiness unto the Lord and, and he was the one who had a very specific focused task of representing the people before God. He was the one who brought offerings and those things to God and they all symbolised of course the great offering of the Lord Jesus on the cross. But So we have these three roles, these three offices and they were not to be mixed, they were to be brought together into one person. Why? Because that was reserved for Messiah in a coming day the the anointed one the one who would come the one who would be Zechariah tells us a priest upon his throne isn't that interesting a priest and a king um, Isaiah chapter 6 brings this out as well uh, you know, the year that King Uzziah died uh, I saw the Lord high and lifted up upon his throne 
and his train filled the temple. He's upon his throne and he's in the temple. So he's a, a king and a associated with the temple, a priest. We'll find out as well. You say, well, why is that significant? Well, it's particularly significant in relation to Uzziah. Um, he's, he's given another name in some parts of the Old Testament, but King Uzziah was an interesting character. He did a great thing for God in his earlier life, but then he his heart swelled up in pride and he thought what he would do is usurp the role of the priest. He would go into God's presence and offer incense and they tried to oppose him from doing it, but he he didn't listen to them. He went in before God's presence as a king to offer incense. Now that was the role of the priest. God had not given him that role. And what happened was very solemnly on that occasion that leprosy rose up on his forehead, it tells us. And why his forehead? Well, that was exactly where the mitre was, holiness unto the Lord. And he was, he was, in that sense, violating the holiness of God's presence by going in there and doing something and, and changing things according to his own will, according to his own uh, ideas. And so um, God gave the role of king and priest to um, different people. Um, it's interesting, David, for instance, he, he acts as a prophet uh, and he is a king, but he was not officially a prophet, if you like. Um, so there are some that show the characteristics of these three offices, but the actual official uh, offices, if you like, are reserved for the Messiah to be prophet, priest, and king together. Now, the one who, who in Israel's history was perhaps closest to being a prophet, priest and king, a proto-Messiah, um, I think was probably Moses. If you think about it uh, in more detail, you'll understand why I say that. He was infinitely superior to most of the rest of the people that came. He brought, um, he was a mediator of a covenant. He was the one who was the saviour of his people. He came from uh, God, as it were, uh, to save his people, to take them out of uh, the land of Egypt. He's a, he was the one who was the prophet. You'll remember, uh, it tells us in Deuteronomy 16, isn't it, that uh, God will, in a future day, raise up a prophet like unto me, he says. Uh, and he's speaking of the Messiah being not only prophet and priest, or not only priest and king, but also a prophet. Uh, and he says the Messiah, in that sense, will be like unto me. And so he links himself to the Messiah, or links the Messiah to himself in, in that interesting way. Um, so he, he is a prophet. There's no doubt that uh, Moses was a prophet. He is not spoken of as a priest, but he did enter the tabernacle. And he spoke to God face to face. Um, very, very interesting what God has to say about this man, Moses. He was faithful in all God's house. You go and look at Numbers chapter 12. You read the section and see how important God placed, uh, what importance God placed on Moses. So he was, in a sense, a prophet. In another sense, he wasn't actually a priest, but he acted in a priestly way. And then, of course, um, while there was no kings, he was the one who ruled. Um, uh, and so there's a sense in which if there was ever one who was the proto-Messiah, there was one that, that, that took a place of preeminence among the children of Israel, it was Moses, the, the great legislator, the great man of ancient times. And Moses was just venerated, not dissimilar to 
to the angels in that sense he was seen as as superior as greater and so on and so forth so that's what's really important for um, the, the writer to the Hebrews to bring out how much greater the Lord Jesus Christ is to Moses. So let's come back to the passage now. Notice the comparison and contrast with the shadow Moses. Uh, what I mean is that the substance is Christ, the shadow is Moses. The antitype is Christ, the, the type is Moses. Um, let's let, look at it a little bit more detail. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. And interestingly, there's a sense in which Moses almost fulfilled those rules as well. He was like Christ again in a certain way, like that. Who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, interesting, what we're wanting to consider is how faithful he was. The Lord Jesus was faithful as an apostle. He came out, he met, brought the message of God to the people, he brought himself to the people, and he went in before God uh, for the people. And in that sense, he was faithful in doing that. He discharged his responsibility uh, to God, who appointed him for these wonderful roles. And Moses was also faithful in all God's house. That's a quotation from Numbers chapter 12. Now, now having considered that, fact that they're both faithful he then goes on and he says uh, there's there are contrasts the lord jesus yes he is like moses in a certain way but he goes far beyond moses in another way for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than moses you might say how could he have more glory than this great man of ancient times and then he says listen it's not even a fair comparison inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house now we know that that's true, that, that a builder or, or an architect or whatever, if, if they design a wonderful building, you might go around and admire the building, but your mind goes back to the fact that there was a mind behind this. There was, there was someone behind this that, that created this. So you, you think of a book uh, and an author, um, you think of a book that might be very complex, but then you say to yourself, well, that means that there's a complex, even more complex mind behind it. And in, in that sense that the that whoever builds the house has more honor than the house itself so so Moses is part of the seen as part of the house that God was building in ancient times a place for God to dwell in in that sense not just the tabernacle but the more uh, spiritual sense of the house okay the house of Israel and, and Moses God was building something and Moses was an integral part of that yes but he was just a part of it he wasn't the builder it was God who was the builder he goes on in the next verse and he says, For every house is built by someone, but he who builds all things is God. And I think this is another claim to the deity of Christ. You see, in chapter 1, he's told us that Christ is the builder of all things. And, and that is true um, with regard to um, the Lord Jesus uh, Christ in this chapter as well. He's saying, listen, it's not even a fair comparison. Moses Yes, he was a great man in God's, God's house. But remember that there's one who built the house. And the one who built the house obviously has more glory than the house itself, than anyone in the house. And then he says, for every house is built by someone. But let's look behind that. Every house ha has a builder in that sense. But the person who builds all things is God. So what he is doing, he's arguing back from effect to cause. He's saying, um, whoever created this wonderful um, universe we live in, must have been greater than the universe 
And so therefore, it's not a fair comparison uh, to say that Moses and the Lord are, are on equal footing here. So it's helpful that we see this at this point. So he is comparing and contrasting um, Moses and Christ. Then he says in verse number uh, five, for Moses indeed was faithful in all God's house. Now, let's stop there for a minute. He is not trying to denigrate Moses or take away from Moses what was true. He was faithful to God in all God's house. And then he says, now listen, he was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Now notice he's in the house and he is a servant. And the word for servant is an incredibly interesting word that is only found here in the New Testament, I believe. And it, it has behind it the thought of one uh, who has who is voluntary in his service, one who is in tune with his master, one who has the interests of his master at his heart. This is not a slave, Julos, or, or even Diakonos, someone who is related to God in service. Not even the, the word for a household servant. It's none of those words. It's a different word that really brings home how important Moses was, how he really had passionately God's concerns when he thought about his house. Now let's stop there for a minute and lift the principle. Do we really have God's concerns in our hearts when we think about uh, God's house, uh, God's people, uh, God's dwelling place now? Um, we know uh, 1 Peter tells us very clearly that that there, that God is building, building something very, very special. Um, coming to him, uh, he tells us, 1 Peter 2 and verse 4, coming to Christ as to a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. And then he says this, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So in, in the work that God is doing now, in the house of God that God has now, this spiritual house that's being erected around us by those who are coming to Christ, um, what we have is, is a, a, an incredible work that's being done by God, by Christ. And we, like Moses, should want to be in tune with, with God as he is doing his work. And so, so it says Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. And then he says, for a testimony of those things that would be spoken afterwards. What do you mean by that? Well, eh, the ESV is helpful here, I think, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In other words, Moses, in, in all that he's doing, and, and the house that he was setting up, and, and the work that he was doing even in the tabernacle, and the house of Israel more generally, it was a picture of something greater that was coming later. And that's a, the, the whole structure of, of the Hebrew letter is saying, listen, you have the greater thing. They had the lesser thing. They had the, they had the, the shadow, you have the substance. They had the, the type, you have the anti-type. Uh, they they had the 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 building basic building blocks. You have this wonderful building of God, which is invisible that God is doing around you at this time uh, in Christ. The contrast now with verse number six. But Christ is faithful, so that's the comparison comparison over God's house as son. Now Moses is in God's house as a servant. Christ is over God's house as a son. We, we, we've seen this before now. Um, we've already noticed that he is the builder of the house uh, under God. In that sense, chapter 1 again uh, is through him. He made everything. Uh, but Christ has son over his own house. Uh, some translations have it. In a sense, he is the owner of the house as well as the builder. Uh, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing hope 
uh, firm to the end. Now, I'm going to look at the last bit of this verse as we come into the next section because it kind of ties in with the, the next section. But just now, at this point, Christ is over his own house. And we see the, the, the importance, the value, the greatness of this one who is superior in every way, shape and sense of Moses himself. And this will come out more and more as we go through and we see the greater covenant. We see that the contrast between the old and the new is brought more vividly before us. Uh, but just at this time, just remember that Christ is superior. He is apostle, high priest. He is the Christ, the anointed. He is the chosen. He is the, he is the prophet, priest and king. He's everything that Moses was merely a shadow of. And, and even in relation to his service in in connection to the house of God, he is vastly superior to Moses. Now, that's more or less considering the Christ chapter, or verse 1 to 6. Now, we didn't really get into the, the second section as much, so I won't say as much about the second section just now, because we'll pick it up in our next podcast, as we will in our next Bible study. But I think it's important to say what we did say, so challenging our belief. Um, Verse number seven, or the last part of six, right down to the end of the passage. Now we're going to see very clearly that verse number eight tells us that unbelief is a chosen response. You know, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In other words, you have a, a responsibility not to harden your heart. And I'm just taking this for a wee second here and running with it. It's an evil, verse number 12. Let, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. It's a departure, departing from the living God. It leads to hardening through sin, verse number 13. But exhort one another daily, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. But wait a minute, you may say, is he not speaking to Christians? Why is he speaking about unbelief? What, what, what exactly does it mean here? Now, I think it's really important that we get to understand Hebrews. I think, personally... Um, in, in the way that I'm looking at it. I, I think it helps anyway. Um, I realise there are some other ways that, that these chapters can be looked at. I, I find it very difficult to make those consistent the whole way through. Uh, and so we're going to take this line through it. Be Berean, go away, try to uh, look at it for yourself. I, I think more generally, we have to keep in mind the idea and the parallels with the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. There was a company that came out of Egypt and there were, there were those who, who were hangers-on. There were those who, um, you know, they didn't really enter in. Outwardly, they were professing the, the, the lordship of Jehovah, of Yahweh, that they were saying that, that, that there was only one God. But then they came to the border of the land and they, then they did not trust him when the message came. They did not really take the final step, the, the sealing step, as it were. And, and, and here we have a group of people that have, that have taken themselves and separated themselves from the nation of Israel. They've said, uh, Jesus is Lord, uh, and, and many of them have confessed that. And he has no doubt, chapter 6, that many of them are showing the signs of true conversion to Christ. But uh, we're going to see that he also is fearful. He is fearful because there is a hesitancy to take on board uh, all that it means to be associated with Christ. And because of that, he fears that among them, there are some who have not truly come forward onto this uh, ground. They have not truly trusted uh, in Christ. They have a head knowledge of these things, but he is going to encourage people to full commitment. 
and he's going to challenge any possible assumption that if there is no continuance, that those people are true. Now, I'll try and I'll repeat that just now. He's going to challenge any possible assumption that if there is no continuance on the part of some of them, if some of them go back to Judaism, that they were in any way true or part of God's building or God's house, what he's doing. You see, it's important that people understand that, you know, you don't just, and and I know it's quite a common expression that you see now, I was once a Christian, but, you know, I once believed this, but, um, according to the New Testament, I'm very uh, confident in saying, if someone comes to you and they deny the deity of Christ, they they deny everything about Christ's person, they, they take a firm stand against Christ, they never had Christ. And I think that comes out in these passages. Now, I don't mean that you can't have doubts. And I don't mean that people can't have existential doubts. What I mean is doubts about everything. But to take a firm, settled conclusion against all that Christ is and all that he says, and to take your stand on that, and for these Jews to go back to Judaism was to do that, it, it is, I think, very clearly bringing out something of the fact that they are not truly the Lord's. And that, I think, is going to be brought out in the next two statements that I'll cover just right now. So challenging our belief, verse 7 uh, to 19. Now look at the last section of verse number 6 for a second. Whose house are we, or we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end? You notice that if. Now, that is kind of one of those passages, and, and, and Hebrews is one of these books that it's, you know, you can go through it and sometimes you say to yourself, whoa, I don't like that verse. It, it, it looks like you could actually lose your salvation. If we hold fast, uh, we're, we're part of God's house, but otherwise we're not. It looks like it's our own merits that, that keep us safe, as it were. If we're just clinging on, we'll be all right. That, that's the way it could be read. Now, I'm going to try to prove to you that's not the point that's being made. Now, notice down, we may as well pick up both passages like it while we're looking at it. Look at verse number 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now again, you look at it and say, well, what he's saying is that really it's important that we continue or else we're not saved. That's the way we could read that if we weren't understanding what he is saying at this point. I think it's really important that we don't get the cart before the horse. Let's look at the passages in more detail and I think hopefully I can prove it to you. Look at verse number 14, the second one for a second. You'll see what, you'll see what he says. He says, um, for we will become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say that. He says, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. In other words, what he's saying, if we continue to the end, it will prove that we have already become partakers of Christ. So the evidence of reality is in continuance in Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you already have become partakers of Christ if you hold the beginning of confidence to the end. If you don't hold that back to the end, it'll just prove that you never in the past became part of Christ. Okay? So the, this is really clear, I think, from a Greek perspective. Um, 
those who are more knowledgeable in Greek than me have pointed out that this is, a, you know, a, a tense, a perfect tense here. It's it very clear tense, which is telling us that this is something that has already happened in the past. They have become partakers of Christ. But that being partakers of Christ is only true if they go on to the end. Now you say, well, does that mean I can lose it? No, it doesn't mean that you can lose it because if, the, if what they were saying was either that you would only get it at the end or you would lose it, they wouldn't say that you have already become it and in the perfect tense form of it. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Here, there are so many times in the New Testament where it makes clear that we're part of the body of Christ. We're part of the building. Um, we're part of the very um, standing before Christ. We're, we're one of his sheep. All these expressions, can, 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 can a sheep be taken out of his flock? Can a member be taken from his body? Uh, can can a stone be removed from his building? Not at all. That's not the force of the New Testament. In fact, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish is the, the characteristic that runs right through the New Testament. The whole structure of the New Testament, the whole idea of grace makes no sense uh, in any other way. So let's understand that what he's saying is the evidence of you being real is if you continue to the end. Okay, back to verse number six. Um, whose house we will become if we hold fast. No, it's not. Whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So what he is again saying, I think at this point, um, my, my understanding of the passage goes as follows. He's challenged in any possible assumption that if there's no contingence on the part of some of them, that they have the real thing. So if some of them decide to go back to Judaism and in so doing trample underfoot the Lord Jesus and 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 in so doing say that he's not the Son of God, say that he is an imposter, say that because that's what they're doing if they're going back to to, to Judaism away from Christ. It's not just a simple leap back to um, partial truth, as it were. It's going back to an erroneous position that is now held by the nation uh, and and. A position where they have rejected the Messiah. And so to go back there, it proves that there was no truth, no reality at the basis and the foundation of what we believe. Now, that's very complicated, but it is really important to understand, I think, in the development of the Hebrew epistle. I hope that helps. Anyway, we'll come back to this passage. Uh, you will notice a few other things that, that come out and when we look at this 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 last part of of chapter 3 and we're going to do chapter 3 the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 next time uh, we trust that the lord will bless you and um, we know that these things are can be difficult but remember to hold fast the the promises that are found at the beginning of this section start of chapter 3 where it says focus in on the lord jesus the the apostle and high priest of our confession and at the end of chapter 4, as we come to the end of this section, he's going to bring us back to the high priest. Seeing then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So he is not one who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Uh, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. 
and we know that the things of earth will grow strangely dim at the light in the light of his glory and grace. We have weakness, we have failure, we have all sorts of things like that in life. We we have it all, but if we have Christ, we are secure to the end and we will know him um, and enjoy him forever. May the Lord bless this quick cover of what we covered in, in the Home Bible Study. Thank you for listening and take care and God bless.